Good morning. Or dare I say, Merry Christmas? How are we, how are we feeling? So, it is Christmas season. Okay, I agree. But so for yourself, like if you have Ebenezer Scrooge on one side, Buddy the Elf on the other, where would you say you're, how you're feeling right now? I'm pretty far on the Buddy the Elf spectrum, way over there. I could go for Christmas year-round. Uh, the last couple of years, we've had our tree up like embarrassingly early. I remember last year we had someone over early November. I kind of just had to be like, look, I know about that decor over there. I know there's a tree in our living room. Don't judge us too hard. We just, we're basically children in this house, and we just get excited and can't wait. So. Um, well, Merry Christmas, then. We're on board with that. As uh, big a deal as Christmas is in our culture, and I'm totally here for all the fun traditions, uh, when it comes to how we talk about it at church, I think we tend to, if not get some things wrong, at least miss out on some of the gifts that this Advent and Christmas season in the church calendar has for us. Uh, we tend to leave some of the gifts of this time of the church calendar unopened, if you want to think of it that way. So if we look at Jesus from a you know, zoomed-out theological perspective, there are these three main tentpole events and concepts that go along with them that kind of make Jesus worth talking about 2,000 years later. So these, these kind of big three ideas are the incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection. So put another way, Jesus' birth, Jesus' death, and Jesus not staying dead. So from what little bit I know about the next couple weeks, uh, Pastor Bob and Josh coming up, I'm just their opening act. Um, it sounds like they're both going to be kind of talking a bit about the cross and resurrection and how they see that tying into the Christmas story. Um, I'll be out of town the week you speak, Josh, but I'll be cheering you on. Um, I'm not upset that you made me your opening act. I'm just out of town. <laughs> Kidding. Um, I'm sure what they have to say will be meaningful and helpful, but kind of before we get there, I want to stay in this first idea of these big three ideas, the incarnation. So I want to insist today that the incarnation has its, its own story to tell. That it's not simply a necessary step on the way to Jesus' death and resurrection. I believe the incarnation is, is, is about much more than that. It has its own story to tell. So if you haven't heard the word incarnation before, you might notice it sounds like carnivore, carne asada, my favorite uh, dish at the Mexican restaurant. It's all coming from the same root word, right? So this is uh, John and the Gospel of John, kind of the prologue to his Gospel, John 1.14, this famous verse. He says, that which, was, that which was eternal, often translated like the word. There's lots of different ways to interpret that word. But essentially, that which was eternal, God became flesh and blood, literally incarnate. Basically, incarnation means to put on meat. Jesus put on a meat suit, like you and I are trapped inside. And Jesus became, put on flesh and became human. He got hungry and tired and sore. God needed snack breaks and bathroom breaks and got itchy. Probably smelled pretty bad most of the time. This is the desert. No Old Spice, right? And all of this is apparently good news for us in some way. In Luke 2, um, when the angel makes the proclamation of Jesus' birth, most people kind of recognize this passage, even if they've never been to church. Uh, you may have heard Linus read it in the Charlie Brown Christmas special, right? The angel says, Behold, I bring you good news that will be for all the people. Good news for all the people. Which kind of you know, begs the question, what is this good news then? What is the story that the mystery of the incarnation has to tell us? So my goal, my hope for today, is to leave you just with a short 
memorable, memorable phrase uh, that can kind of become our meditation, our central idea to hold on to all throughout this next month, and maybe even for you know, each Christmas season to come if it resonates with you like it does with me. Uh, we're going to spend the rest of our time fleshing this out, but here's the framework, the little teaser of what I hope we'll, we'll leave with. This phrase, God is blank, and God looks like blank. Fill in the blank. Make a little game out of it. So there's your teaser. That's where we're going. In two out of the four uh, Gospels, we don't get any real Christmas story. Mark is the shortest, most distinct of the Gospels. He just jumps into Jesus' life without um, any other Christmas backstory. John's account, which is its own thing in a lot of ways, um, his gospel is much more like theological and mystical and nonlinear. His story of Jesus' life starts with um, some very like poetic and deeply abstract and philosophical thoughts on Jesus' origin. But in Mark and John, there's no Mary or Joseph, no stable, no wise men, no Ralphie trying to get his own Red Ryder BB gun. None of that. All of our Christmas, source, uh, Christmas story source material is really just from these first two chapters of Matthew and Luke. And Matthew chapter 1 is where I want to start. So let's jump in at verse 19 where Joseph is in the middle of processing all of this. So this is uh, Matthew. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. So what you can see from this line is that Joseph is both a good, like, practicing Jewish man, and also just a good man who doesn't want to completely ruin Mary's life here. So because of this, he decides that just quietly ending the engagement is the best route. Verse 20, But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, And you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. So there's a couple of ideas here I want to to start with. There are two names, each paired with their respective meanings. So First we have, she will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. So there's a footnote in, in many translations, including the NIV, which is the one I just read from, uh, that points out that the name Jesus is just simply the Greek translation of the Hebrew name Yeshua or Joshua, which means God saves. So this is why it says, give the name Jesus, because he's going to save the people from their sins. These ideas aren't completely unrelated, right? It's not a non sequitur. Uh, Name the baby Benjamin because he will have big eyebrows. Like it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not a, it's not a non sequitur. There's a reason that he has given this name Jesus because he will save the people from their sins. This is what Jesus means. God saves. So next time you see Josh Young or Josh Reed around, just call him God saves and see if they respond. The angel is saying the name saying, name the baby God saves, because that's what this baby is going to do. Jesus is going to Jesus, if you want to use Jesus as a verb, right? Jesus is going to save. So this first name in the story means God saves, but there's a second name. The passage, uh, the passage says this, All this took, took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
This is a direct quote uh, from the prophet Isaiah who spoke of a baby that would be born as a sign that God was acting on this promise that he had made to save his people, which luckily, I'm happy about this, this is good news, which luckily saving his people includes the whole world, right? And that this baby would be called Emmanuel, God with us. Matthew is constantly, throughout his gospel especially, making these connections, drawing straight lines from the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, that he and his friends and neighbors knew so well, direct lines to Jesus. And in his telling of this Christmas narrative, he makes this association, this connection to the prophet Isaiah. Matthew is saying this baby, Jesus, is this sign that Isaiah spoke of, is Emmanuel, God with us. Before we go any further, let's just uh, hit pause and, and play a quick game. So this is one of my sister and I's favorite games to play. It's Guess the Random Person. Okay, so I'm thinking of a person. It's an older white man with a long white beard. He lives far away. He only comes to visit on special occasions. He's far away, but he's also like, watching us all the time through some sort of like creepy magic. And he keeps a list of who's good, who's bad. He always checks this list two times just to make sure he gets it right. Because the, the good gifts, you know, the good gifts only goes to those who have, who have been good enough to earn them. All right. So who am I thinking of on the count of three? Ready? One, two, three. Yeah. Incorrect. Did you say Santa? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's true. Now, I was thinking actually about this, character, this caricature we have of a version of God, right? Old white guy far away in the sky with a long flowing beard. Only shows up on special occasions. He's always watching us and keeping a list of what we do right and what we do wrong. It, it does sound like Santa. That was a trick. But it also sounds like a version of God I hear a lot of people talk about. So lucky for us, God and Santa aren't actually all that alike. Now, this is not the part where I talk about how Santa is like satanic or something. Although, have you ever noticed that if you rearrange the letters of Santa... <laughs> I took a risk with that joke, and you guys came with me, so I appreciate it. No, no I'm kidding. I'm totally fine with Santa. Um, we don't really like, try to trick our kids too hard. We just sort of acknowledge it's a fun thing to go along with, but if you want to kind of go all in, lie to your kid's face for years only to break their trust, right, and they're most formative, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. No, I really love, I really love all the silly like, Christmas traditions. I, I do. I want to live my whole life you know, keeping my sense of childlike imagination and silliness and wonder alive, so I'm here for it. The only problem is that this, this mythology of a distant old bearded dude who shows up about once a year to give us presents, if we've been good enough, kind of finds its way into like Christian theology, right? More likely, I guess, it's, it's probably that this way of looking at God or the gods has been kind of deeply entrenched in the human psyche for as long as we've been around. Santa and Zeus actually do share a lot of similar qualities, right? Zeus looks like Santa... Santa, like, worked out instead of eating all the cookies from around the world. There's a lot of similarities. If you or someone you know would describe themselves as an atheist, but would give a version of God that sounds a whole lot like Santa to describe what they don't believe in, I would say, great, like, I agree. Like, I don't believe in a Santa Claus God either. The portrait of God Jesus paints for us is not one of a faraway God making toys for us to, you know, go play with someday when we die. 
I don't believe in this Santa Claus God either. It's not the picture of God that Jesus painted for us. So to revisit my fill-in-the-blank phrase from a few minutes ago, the first blank we're going to fill in and then flesh this out a little bit more. God is with us. God is with us is the first blank. Here's a little saying I came up with. It's a little cute for my taste, but I do like it. Sometimes, you know, especially around Christmas, like Christmas music is great. It's cheesy. Great and cheesy can be the same, like on pizza. He's saying, um, here's the saying. Christmas is about God's withness. Christmas is about God's withness. Withness is a weird made-up word, but I like, I like it. If you are kind of unconvinced of the power of simple withness, let's just think of a couple examples. If you've ever experienced the loss of a loved one, I'm willing to bet more than anything a pastor said, no offense to the pastors in the room, even more than anything that was done for you, as helpful and meaningful as a home-cooked meal or a comforting word can be in those moments, when someone is grieving, uh, grieving, excuse me, the greatest balm to that raw wound is simply witness. It's a big part of why I still believe in the local church. The the witness that happens when you live in this sort of community. I've seen this up close and personal for a few decades now. It's one of the many bizarre parts of my my pastor's kid life, right? I have been on stage playing music, and I don't even know how many funerals. It's a weird thing to brag about. I've been to a lot of funerals, and I've, most of them have been up here playing music, looking out this way. I've had this unique perspective of looking at a funeral from the stage. From up here, looking this way, you, see, you can see the, the raw power of witness when people are grieving. Of people simply being with one another in their times of greatest sadness and hurt. And this is the image of God that, that Jesus gives us throughout the Gospels. A God that is not far off, but kind of right there with us in the thick of the sadness and the disappointment and the grief. With the power of wit- the, the power of witness, though, is also seen kind of on the other end of the spectrum, right? Big life events like weddings and the birth of children, the more everyday things like a good meal or a concert or watching the sunset. What often makes these things special is that we are sharing them with others. Jesus did a bunch of big things, to say the least, right? Jesus broke up the status quo in all these radical ways. He gave dignity back to the the untouchables of society. He befriended those who had no friends. He called out the religious hypocrites. And he was also just like apparently great at parties. He was accused of being a drunkard and a glutton because he loved to hang out with the rough crowd and throw big parties, turn water into top shelf wine, invite the little children to to places they weren't supposed to be. Obviously, people loved to be around Jesus. They loved to be with him. And Jesus, and this this seems uh, obvious, but I don't know how much we consider this. It seems that Jesus loved to be with people, too. I don't think Jesus was just putting in his time tolerating people. I think Jesus loved to be with people. So Jesus gives us this image of a God who is not far off. Uh, an image of a God who is intimately with us in the highs and the lows. And coming to see this and kind of letting it actually sink into our, our, our DNA, I think is one of the great gifts of this Christian tradition that we're here participating in today. A concept of Emmanuel that God is with us. 
there's, there's still more problems to kind of work through, though. So replacing the image of a, a Santa Clausian, distant God with a God who is with us is a great, it's a great start, but it's only kind of half of the equation I want to tackle today. What if your image of God isn't someone you'd actually want to be with? How many of us have an image of God we even want to kind of be around? So here's kind of like a, a way to think of it. Imagine that Jesus walked into the room right now. What would you, what would you feel? I kind of tend to think that even the most cynical, disinterested person's going to be okay with Jesus walking into the room. Now I'm going to tweak the question slightly. Imagine that the God of the universe walked into the room right now. How would that make you feel? So for many of us, the, the answer is to how we, we would respond to the God version of the question and the Jesus version of the question are actually quite different. And I think that's, that's telling us something. I'm going to hit through a few uh, scripture references here quickly. In the first chapter of Colossians, uh, the Apostle Paul says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In the first chapter of Hebrews, the anonymous writer of that letter says, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God's being. Probably most notably, all throughout John's gospel, John is painting this, this same picture. What is essentially John's version of the, the Christmas incarnation story summed up in, in one verse? We mentioned this verse earlier. He says, the logos, or it's typically translated the word, essentially getting at like that which was eternal, God, that which was eternal became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory. And then in John 5, 10, and 14, Jesus says these phrases respectively. I am only ever doing what the Father tells me to do. I and the Father are one. And if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. We know Jesus isn't talking about Joseph here, right, when he's talking about the Father. He's talking about the God of the universe, the same God we have all these questions about today. We are not the first people in human history to be asking big questions about what God is like. Long before us, long before Jesus, for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, human beings have been wondering how and why did we end up here? What exactly is going on? What's the nature of all this? Have you ever stepped outside on a clear night, looked up at the starry expanse, and just thought, like, what the heck? What, what is this? What am I doing here? That's, that's the human experience. Humans have been doing this for a long time. What these verses, among others, are saying is that Jesus is showing us what the infinite looks like. Put in another way, and this is the second fill in the blank, God looks like Jesus. That sounds like good news, right? That God looks like Jesus. And here's another layer to that. God looks at us the way Jesus looked at the people he was with. Suddenly, to some of us, the infinite God walking in the room sounds a little better than it did a minute ago. If God, the infinite, the source of all that is and ever will be, if that looks like Jesus... This is good news. When Jesus is a helpless baby fully dependent on his mother, 
being nursed by an unmarried teen mother on the back of a donkey while they flee for their lives as refugees to Egypt. Somehow, that is showing us a bit of what God is like. When Jesus eats with the outsiders and, and saves his harshest words for the religious leaders, that's showing us a bit about what God is like. In all the parables, all the bold claims, all the even bolder actions, even in all the things Jesus doesn't do or say that so many people expected him to do or say. Every inch of these Gospels are showing us a bit about what God is like. Because God looks like Jesus. I think we can sense kind of right away that this is good news. I want to get even more practical about how we can use this phrase, this truth, that God looks like Jesus. So let's talk about filters and handles. This is where we're going. In the story of creation we have in Genesis. We're given this, this beautiful language that many of us know about how human beings are created in the image and the likeness of God. That is, all creation was made by God and, and declared good. But human beings carry something special, a divine spark, something about humans are more like God than the rest of the creation. This is a two-way street, though. Human beings also make gods into our own image and likeness. And I'm not just talking about those times that the Israelites, you know, they made idols of stone or wood, gold. I'm talking about what you and I do. We all, to some extent, make and are attracted to versions of God that look like us, that make sense to us. And this is not innately bad. I think our finite brains and experiences will never grasp or perfectly articulate an infinite God. So I'm sure God is fine with this. I think it's all part of how it works. But this human limitation that, that our images of God will inevitably be influenced by our, the time we live in and our culture and our family upbringing, how the authority figures influenced us as we were growing up, the sum of all of our life experience, all of this and a thousand more fact, uh, factors are at play in how we see and, and relate and understand God. I think that's okay. I think God's okay with this. The inevitable consequence of this human limitation is that there are so many competing versions of God for us to discern our way through. Which versions of God deserve our attention and which, you know, which versions of God should we reject? What pastor do I listen to? What church do I go to? What books do I read? What speakers do I allow to influence me? How should I kind of take the things that my church friends say to me in small group or any of these other church environments where we're kind of talking about these ideas, right? What ideas about God should I entertain as true? And maybe even more importantly, what ideas about God should I reject? There's so many competing opinions about what God is like vying for our attention. It calls for a filter, it's sad, but I'd, I'd argue that the majority, maybe even the vast majority, of the images of God we come across will look nothing like Jesus. This is how you get a culture where so many people within, especially, especially within, you know, 10 years, either direction of my age, so many people will say that they, they're, they're okay with Jesus, but all the other stuff they reject. It's because so many images of God look nothing like Jesus. 
Let me, let me give you an example of, of how I would use this. I'm going to pick on one specific pastor, but he's been dead for like 300 years, so we're good. In 1741, Jonathan Edwards gave what is possibly the most famous sermon in American history, even though it was given a few decades before America became America. His sermon uh, is called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. In it, he uses very descriptive language, and actually a lot of like English professors will use this sermon as an example of incredible descriptive writing. I'll give him that. He uses very descriptive language to paint a picture of how, quote, repulsive we are to God. According to Jonathan Edwards in 1741, God is a thousand times more repulsed by you and me as we are repulsed by spiders and snakes. And I'm pretty grossed out by those, so a thousand times more. In one of the most famous passages of this, this long sermon, he paints this picture of God dangling us above a fire like a mean-spirited kid would dangle a spider by one leg above a flame. So this kind of bratty child meets abusive parent image of God. It, it, it influenced much of kind of Western Christianity for the last couple hundred years, but it looks nothing like Jesus. It just doesn't. I'm firmly atheistic about that God, too. Now, I pick on Jonathan Edwards. He's just a, a, you know, an, an easy example, and I didn't necessarily want to go on record calling out specific pastors and theologies from stage. It's not my style. I only have so much time anyways. There are many uh, angry versions of God out there today. It's not just relegated to kind of fire and brimstone classic sermons from hundreds of years ago. There are many angry versions of God out there, and and not righteous anger, because I can hear that pushback already. Well, Jesus got angry. He sure did. Not righteous anger fueled by love and with the ultimate goal of redemption. Just petty, angry gods that sound way less capable of compassion and forgiveness than just about any human I've ever met. And surely God can be more capable of compassion and forgiveness than I can, than you can. Not all gods are angry, though. There's, there's some really nice ones. Some gods will make you rich. You just have to donate now. The current pledge drive, this, this, this pastor, he seems really nice. He just needs one more private jet. He's just got to be able to get to all the speaking gigs in time. So just donate now. God will make you rich in time. There are gods who only love certain ethnic groups. There are gods who look a lot like Santa Claus. You know, Mother Teresa evokes God's name as she gives her life caring for the absolute poorest of the poor in the world. And then on the other side, recently I saw images of Russian priests evoking God's name as they pray over weapons that Putin will use to wage war in Ukraine both talking about God, but only one of these looks a lot more like Jesus than the other. So there are many, many versions of God out there to choose from. Luckily, we have this filter, that God looks like Jesus. So if a God you are presented with doesn't pass this test, it's not the God Jesus was born to reveal to us. So God looks like Jesus. It's it's a filter. It's also a handle. Sometimes we need a filter because maybe we're actively trying to work our way through what we are learning about God. Maybe we're unpacking the religious frameworks we were given as a child, or it's, we're in a church that we, you know, we're pushing back against things we're hearing that kind of seem off. It's exploring new ideas about Christianity we haven't explored before. There's times we need that handle. Or I'm sorry, sometimes we need that filter. Other times we need a handle. Here's what I mean by that. There are times of unknowing, of agnosticism. And, and just a side note here, 
Much about agnosticism, I think, is actually super healthy and actually biblical. I'm agnostic about a lot. We have this desire to fully comprehend and systematize everything, but that just doesn't work well for an infinite God. Boxing in infinity doesn't, doesn't tend to work. So I would actually recommend like a healthy dosage of agnosticism, of open-handedness, that we are very finite and limited and God is not. And there's only so much we can know and understand and systematize. But that feeling of complete unknowing, and maybe even active, kind of actively believing that knowing much of anything is actually impossible. That's a, that's a really hard place to live. It's, a hard, it's hard to live life with a sense of meaning from that place of complete unknowing. It's hard to raise a family from that place. How do you pass down? It's impossible to know anything to your kids. For those of us who find ourselves in a place of unknowing, if you find yourself here in this place of unknowing but of curiosity or of, of longing to kind of get back maybe a faith you used to have that's now in a place of unknowing, a place to start or a bedrock when kind of nothing else makes sense is that God looks like Jesus. It's a place to start. It's a foundation to build on. I've done plenty of picking apart at my faith, swapping things out, abandoning some things, picking up new ideas, staying open-handed about others. And all the, the picking apart of my faith I've done over the last decade plus, this idea that God looks like Jesus will always be a baby worth saving from any bathwater for me. This is a foundation that I feel confident in. You can use this truth that God looks like Jesus. You can use it as a filter, or you can use it as a handle. Maybe even a lifeline if that's what you need in the time. Throughout the, the Hebrew scriptures, these writings Christians call the Old Testament, there are stories of God slowly revealing himself. Seekers and prophets catching glimpses of God throughout the Old Testament. But we're here today because we believe that the full uh, revelation of what God is like doesn't come until a baby is born in a dark shack full of stinky animals in a nowhere town to an unmarried, uneducated, seemingly unimportant couple who were part of an ethnic group that was squashed under the rule of the most powerful, ruthless empire the world had ever seen. To these people, under these circumstances, a baby is born. And this baby is going to grow up and do all these radical things the height of which is die a death he didn't deserve, forgive his murderers while they're in the process of killing him, and then come back to life and show that the death was never the end. After all this, Jesus is, is saying, look, everything I've done, the, the totality of my life, what I am like, what Jesus is like, is what God is like. And Jesus' final words in the book of Matthew or surely I am with you always, even to the ends of the age. So you have God is with us, and God looks like Jesus. Every story in the accounts of the life of Jesus are showing us what, what God is like. We could simply skip to the ending where Jesus dies and comes back to life. But reading it in this way is, is missing out on a huge opportunity, the chance to learn something about what God is like which is to learn something about this seemingly unknowable shape of this mysterious existence we all ended up with. None of us asked to be born, right? 
to learn what God is like is, is to get a glimpse of an answer to the biggest questions humans have ever asked. And this is what the, Christ, the, the Christmas story offers us. Answers to two of, these life's biggest, two of life's biggest questions. Am I alone? And what is God, or the person, the thing behind all of this, what is God like? The story of Jesus of Christmas is putting an answer out there. To are we alone, we get the answer that of God, of Emmanuel, God with us, telling us we're not alone. And so what is God like? To that we get four accounts of Jesus' life. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Show us, they show us what God is like in ways our human minds can understand. That which was infinite and incomprehensible became a finite body that we could understand so that we could grasp what the infinite creator and sustainer of the universe is like. The band can go ahead and come to the stage. I'm wrapping up. Wherever you find yourself in this, this Christmas season, if your life is chaos, kind of filled to the brim with school concerts and sports practices and long lines at Walmart, having to coordinate big meals with all the extended family, working overtime to pay for your kids' presents, maybe that's where you find yourself. Maybe this Christmas season is less joy to the world and more melancholy. Maybe you don't have a family like the ones that are in all the advertisements in the movies to celebrate with. Maybe that family never happened for you. Maybe the family used to be there, but there's been a divorce, or you used to have it, and then you moved away. Maybe you never liked Christmas. Your heart is just three sizes too small, like the Grinch. Maybe you're newly in love, or newly married, or a new parent, or you're just like me, and you're a big kid. And the, the Christmas songs and the Christmas lights all have an extra glow to them this year. Maybe that's you. Kind of wherever you find yourself, whether lonely or overwhelmed, doubting or enthusiastic, Blue Christmas or rocking around the Christmas tree, wherever you are. I hope and pray that, that you would find some peace in this season. I hope and pray that you'll find peace in this season as you take with you this very good news of Christmas, that God is with us and God looks like Jesus.